Well, good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to find John's first letter, 1 John in chapter 1. 1 John in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And as you're finding it, also please join me in prayer. Father, we're grateful for this day to gather around your Word. So thankful that your Word is words of life, enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds and hearts, to set us free from sin, to encourage us, to strengthen us. And I pray in these brief moments that you would do that, and that you would help us, even as you meet here with us, for your name's sake and your glory. Amen. First John chapter 1 and the first four verses, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our, your fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. William Shakespeare begins his play, one of his tragedies, Richard III, with a famous line. And even if you've never heard of Richard III or read Richard III or seen Richard III acted out, you may be familiar with this line. It begins this way, Richard III speaking. He says, now is the winter of our discontent. Now is the winter of our discontent. And here Richard is using a metaphor, the idea of winter, a season of gloom and overcast skies to depict a state of discontent, a state of restlessness. And what's happening in the play is that Richard and his family are under current oppression by Henry IV. And they're about to throw that off. But at this point, at least in this first line, Richard III is opening the play by saying, now in the winter of our discontent. As I was reading this recently, I thought really it was a fitting description of our own season, our own cultural moment, these months and years in which we're in, in our land and in our world, truly now is the winter of our discontent. As a church member and friend of pastors, this is the most challenging environment I've ever observed for pastoral ministry. I don't know how my brothers are persevering in this time. It's so challenging, this winter of discontent. As a citizen in this country, these days are some of the most uncertain that I've ever seen, just in terms of not being sure of what tomorrow might bring, much less four hours from now. And as someone mindful of what's happening among the nations of the world, my heart regularly breaks, repeatedly breaks, for increased reports of persecution, total disregard for humanity, general bleakness that most peoples in the world are experiencing even now. But even if you're not dialed into all those things like I am, maybe your experience is far more local and just tied to your present circumstances. You're starting a new semester at a new school. You've moved away from your family for the first time. You're into three weeks, and it's sort of hitting you that, that this has all been fun, kind of like camp, but now it's, this is my life, and I'm here. And there's a sort of creeping in the clouds, this winter of discontent might be called homesickness, and this might be called loneliness, 
might be called uncertainty. Or perhaps you're entering into the final phase of your doctoral program and that looming mountain of the dissertation is just staring at you and everyone tells you it won't be that bad, it can be done, you can tackle it, but you alone know you've got to go into a room and sit down and type the thing. And it's weighing on you. And with that, there's also the looming sense of, well, what do I do when I've done? This is, when I'm done, this has been my job for three or four years, and now I, I don't know where I'm going to go. I don't know what I'm going to do. There are no academic jobs out there. I mean, how do I... You're feeling the weight of discontent and restlessness simply because of a personal trial, an uncertain future, or just simply circumstances that are beyond your control. Now is the winter of our discontent. Well, as followers of Christ, we know that our hope is not in this world. No matter how challenging it might become within or without, local or global, but yet as we persevere here, awaiting and longing for Christ's return, much like the arrival of spring, the end of winter, bringing spring, how are we to think of this wintry season? And more importantly, how are we to live? Well, first, I think it's helpful to think of it as a season, now is the winter of our discontent. It is a season. Even though there is much in this world to, to lament, we can remind ourselves that in this season, God's promises are true, and he hasn't changed. There is still every day, every minute of every day, something to be thankful for. And more than that, there are multitude of reasons to have hope. We can be reminded that God's kingdom is still expanding in places never before thought possible. Even, even with the disregard to humanity in many of the nations of the world, God's kingdom is expanding in nations we've never thought before possible. Churches are being formed and people are coming to Christ among Muslim peoples by the hundreds. And we can find hope, hope in things like that. And so it is a season and therefore it's not actually as bleak as it appears. Living in Kansas City as I have for seven years, there's two weeks or so, just to warn you here, um, for those of you who have moved out of time, there's two weeks come January, February, where it gets into the single digits. And there's a couple of those days in those two weeks where it feels like it's never going to come out of the single digits. But it always does. It's a season. It always does. It's not actually as bleak as it appears. And if we train our hearts and our minds to look on Christ, we'll be remembered, we'll be reminded of all these things we know to be true, and in that we'll have hope. But even as we're persevering in that way, how are we to live? How are we to follow Christ in these wintry seasons? And more importantly, as we're thinking about going out and doing ministry or going out into the marketplace, how are we to help others do the same? What pattern should we be giving to lead others and to have others follow Christ as we follow Christ? Well, my purpose today, and by looking and thinking about this text in 1 John, is to show that the one vital way, the one vital way that God has given us to be in this world and not of it, to have renewed life within us, to have true hope regardless of how we feel, or whether we have any answers for what's coming, to simply walk in the Spirit is to pursue fellowship, to pursue fellowship. And to pursue it as if our lives depended upon it. To prioritize it as if our lives depended upon it. Because they do. They do. Let me explain what I mean. These first four verses of John's first letter point us in it to the gospel. And John is saying that the natural, most natural byproduct of the gospel is fellowship. Is fellowship. And as we examine this, I hope to remind us of the value of fellowship, especially in our season of wintry discontent. 
So look with me now, 1 John chapter 1, and we'll do some Bible study here in the first four verses. And then if you hang with me through that, we'll get into some ways in which I think might be applicable to you to pursue fellowship in this age. This, these first four verses comprise John's prologue to his first letter. And if you read it, you'll hear echoes of his prologue to his gospel. It's the same author using the similar devices. And this makes it unique in that it lacks many of the typical headings we'll find throughout New Testament letters. John does not announce himself as the author. He's not announcing who are the recipients. He just starts right into this beautiful brief prologue, the way he starts his gospel in the same way. And this should clue us in that John's letter is actually really a sermon. It's a letter, yes, it's meant to be read and to be read again, but it really is a sermon, and it's given to people that he knows well, so well that he doesn't have to announce who he is as the author. And so he dispenses with all the usual personal greetings. He's so familiar with them, he just gets right to what he has to say. We know this in part because later in chapter 2, he'll refer to his audience as his children. And then in verse 19, he'll reference some who are among them who left them. So he's clearly preaching a sermon to a community that he knows well. But in this prologue, these brief four verses, John does present and summarize many of the themes to which he'll return later throughout the letter. It is a prologue. It is a preface. It's almost a table of contents of what will come. And he uses a very unique literary device that I just find fascinating uh, to capture the attention of his audience. And what he does is he uses a single sentence from verse 1 all the way through halfway of verse 3. In the original language, that's just one sentence. So he starts off with this sermon that's just sort of one long sentence. And it's a single sentence that scholars have called a grammatical tangle. A grammatical tangle. And if you come across that and you think, okay, well, then I'm not going to try to translate 1 John if it begins with a grammatical tangle. I'm running away from that. Give me something a little more simple. What do they mean by a grammatical tangle? Well, in the first verse, there are four verbs, but none of them are the main verb. So he's just launching all these descriptive verbs at you, but the main verb doesn't come until verse 3. These four verbs in verse 1 are giving account as to the authenticity of the message he's proclaiming, as well as the Christ proclaimed. So in these early verses, John speaks here of the Christ as the word of life that was fully human. He talks about Christ as someone they have seen and someone they have touched. He was a fully human being. And he also talks in these first four verses of Jesus Christ as being someone fully divine. He was from the beginning, and he gets to the point of saying, with the Father, fully human and fully divine. And so as much as John is articulating throughout his letter a very balanced and effective Christology, when you think about the two natures of Christ, you want something that's completely in balance, 100% man, 100% God. And even in John's day, there were sects of people drifting into error, trying to diminish his humanity or diminish his divinity to somehow make sense of who was the God-man Christ Jesus. John, beautifully in four verses, is just articulating, look, we've seen him, we've touched him, but he was also from the beginning and with the Father. He was fully man and, and fully God all at the same time, refuting those in the companies of his hearers who are whispering in their ears various kinds of heresies, trying to pull them from the side, and would, would begin to rip apart even the early church in the years after John finishes these letters. But don't miss this. In the midst of him articulating a balanced Christology, we would say, he is not giving sight of the point of the balanced Christology. 
namely Christ himself, and then what they're to do with the message of Christ himself, how they are to live. And it's here we begin to see his pastoral focus. I'm going to teach you well. I'm going to guide you into truth. I'm going to open up the word of God. I'm going to show you the things that are true about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but for a reason. And so we see his pastoral focus. He gives how the gospel should change their lives and produce fruit. The gospel, this idea of the coming of Christ, is the most important thing. And it's also the key to living the Christian life and living in fellowship. And that's the key to thinking through how we live in seasons of discontent. So let's look a little bit more closely at this first long sentence. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and made manifest to us that we have seen that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. That is one long sentence. At the center of that sentence is the phrase word of life. This phrase is a powerful one and it's intended to communicate a lot of things about the word himself Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh, but who also came as a life giver. He is the word, but he is the word of life. He is giving eternal life. In John's gospel, chapter 6, John recounts the disciples' response to Jesus, teaching them some difficult things to grasp. And at the end of that, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus Christ is the word of God, and he is the keeper of words of life. He is both the word, and he is the life giver. Verse 2, depending on your translation, I'm using the ESV largely here, is set apart by a couple of dashes. And scholars often refer to this verse as a parenthesis, and to underscore John saying, if you don't believe that we've heard, seen, and touched Jesus Christ, let me say it to you again in a little bracket here that we really have. My, me and my fellow witnesses had actually been with Jesus. And he's saying that Jesus' life was made manifest here. Jesus, God himself, became a man in part so that humans could know and comprehend him. Sometimes at Christmas time, we just blow right past the miracle of the incarnation. Or Christmas time is the only time we think about the incarnation. But part of the gospel is understanding that Jesus Christ, the word of God, who was with the Father from the beginning, came and was manifest as a man for a purpose, a man himself. In these verses, verse 1 and 2 and part of 3, John is continuing to testify that he and those who saw and knew and touched Jesus bear witness to what they have seen for a purpose, that the result of their proclamation of Jesus Christ would result in others having eternal life. Now, one more granular thing, and this is where we get a little more lecture than, than sermon, but you can't miss something of real structural beauty in the way that John has crafted this sentence. In verse 1, notice the order. John says that they've heard, and then he says that they've seen. Then we go through the parenthesis of verse 2, and then we come out in verse 3, and John recounts that they encountered Jesus, the word of life. He reverses the order. He says first that they've seen and then they've heard. So verse 1, they've heard. They heard with their ears, and then they saw Jesus. Then he gives his bracketed verse in verse 2, and then in verse 3, he comes out and says, actually, we saw, and then we heard. So if you think of that visually, it's almost like a, you can think of it two ways, going down into a valley or coming back up, or going up to a mountain and coming back down. We heard, and then we saw, 
and we saw and then we heard. And what's at the center of either that mountain or that valley is Christ himself. John is just inverting those two verses to point you to the word of life himself. We heard him and then we saw him. Who? Jesus Christ. We saw him and then we heard him. And he's doing this structurally, the beauty of the words of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, used by the Apostle John to illuminate, even in this package, Jesus Christ himself. We heard and we saw. We saw and we heard. The center is Christ. It elevates and points to the word of life, Jesus Christ. John's emphasis here is not only on the message they receive and proclaim, but even more on the object of the message. And in that, so much is key. And don't miss this, all of you who are students here. In your days at this school, you will receive all kinds of help. You will receive knowledge about things that will unlock doors to room you never knew existed, that will change your life forever. Your professors will help clarify things that in your mind have always been muddy, and it will transform your life forever. But with all that biblical clarity that you get, and all that it helps you sort out, X from Y and A to Z, don't drift past the object of that knowledge, Jesus Christ himself. Don't gain a head full of knowledge and be able to answer all these things and miss our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself. John and his followers didn't. We shouldn't either. I was visiting last week in a PhD seminar with Mike Brooks, and he had read a sermon by Charles Spurgeon on 1 Timothy 1.15 called The Gospel in a Single Verse. Only Spurgeon has the best sermon titles, The Gospel in a Single Verse. And in that sermon, Spurgeon refers to what Luther called verses like 1 Timothy 1.15 as little Bibles. There are verses and sections throughout the Bible that are actually Luther called little Bibles. Why do he call them little Bibles? Because contained in these small sections are the essence of the whole Bible itself. 1 Timothy 1.15 is one. I think this long sentence in 1 John is one as well. This is a little Bible contained in this thing. At the center of it is Christ. Is all that you need to understand what is the word of life and to know how to live. This is a wonderful little Bible. Well, in that first part of verse 3, we actually get our main verb. It's the phrase, we proclaim. And that's key for understanding what John is saying here at the start of his letter. We proclaim also to you. Jesus Christ, it's the center of everything. He's the word of life, and we're proclaiming him to you. We're proclaiming him to you. And it's a statement sharing that this isn't a message that we just testify to and have, but for those who've seen Jesus in the flesh, but it's for all of you who hear the message that's proclaimed. John is relaying here that the gospel the good news about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that following the fall, fall of humankind into real and actual sin and separation from God, God the Father in eternity past sent God the Son in the power of God the Spirit to become a human being, to become one of us, so that Jesus Christ could fulfill every requirement of the law perfectly. And then once he had done that, he laid down his life, enduring a significant punishment, both real and physical, but also eternal the weight of which we can never possibly understand by bearing the full weight of the wrath of God. He did that. He took our place and endured and satisfied every requirement that God would have for the punishment of sin. Why? So that anyone who believes in him can actually have their sins forgiven. He took your place. He took my place to really take away all of the requirements of the law that were upon us. All the punishment that we deserve but for our infraction of every ounce of the law. And he did it so that we could have fellowship restored. Jesus Christ made available for free, true life, eternal life, 
as the word of life. And John and the apostles received this message from Christ, and now they proclaim it. We proclaim it to those receiving the letter, and therefore to us who are still reading the letter even today. This Christ, the center of this little Bible, is for you to know and to cherish and to love. Have you actually come to a place in your life where you have repented of your sins and trusted Jesus to see those sins forgiven? Has what I said and described clicked with you in some way that it has never clicked with you before, that it somehow it's unlocked some door that you've never seen? You can trust in Christ today, even right in your seat right now. It, it, this is for you. It is free, and it is good news, and it is for you, and you can trust it even right now. But Jesus Christ came and did these things and lived this life for a purpose. It is transactional. It is meant to free us from our sins, but it's also to do much more than that. And here we get to the heart and the final section of what I want to go through here. The key to persevering in the seasons of discontent is the pursuit of fellowship. Jesus Christ died and rose again and gave us new life so that we could have fellowship with him and with one another. Look at the last half of verse 3. So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Through Christ, the fellowship with God that was lost in the fall has been restored. Life in Christ is the essence of fellowship. When the Bible talks about fellowship, the idea here is clearly Christian fellowship. It's not superficial or surfacey fellowship. It's not fellowship tacked on to a nice meal um, that we have or gathering to watch a sporting event. It is true Christian fellowship. It's rooted in a common faith with Christ. And as this term is used throughout John's work, but also all of the New Testament, it contains this idea of mutual sharing or partnering, something that's reciprocal. Just as Jesus refers to believers as being branches connected to him, the true vine to abide in him, those branches are connected to him and therefore can have fellowship and connection to one another. Thus, John's point in these first four verses is just summarized well by John Stott. Stott says, We proclaim to you concerning the word of life what was from the beginning, which we have seen, heard, and touched, and the objects of our proclamation are fellowship and joy. The purpose of the gospel is life in Christ and fellowship. Therefore, how are we to cultivate that fellowship? And here I have three areas. I think we as believers in Christ have to be intentional about cultivating fellowship with one another in the local church. I think, number two, we have to be intentional about cultivating fellowship with Christian friends. And then three, we have to be careful about cultivating fellowship with God himself. And if we do this, we will be able to persevere through the seasons of wintry discontent. First, with the church, and with the church in Christ. True fellowship in the church is only possible if it finds its source in Christ. You may say, well, that, that's obvious. Well, not every church is focused on Christ. Not every building that houses people gathering together under the name of Christ is actually focused on Christ. A longtime friend of C.S. Lewis, Austin, Austin Farrer, once wrote, to be a loyal churchman is hobbyism, unless it is the way to be a loyal Christian. To see through the church to Christ as a man sees through the telescope to the stars. Anyone can be a member of a local church, but local churches that point you into the way of Christ help you actually to be a faithful Christian. To see through church, the church to Christ is the way a man sees through the telescope to the stars. Not every church has its telescope pointed to Christ. 
And where a church has its telescope pointed is going to be the focus and the basis of their fellowship. Whether it's trends or fads or humor or cultural engagement or running away from the cultural, whatever it may be, true fellowship is only possible in the church if it's focused on Christ. It's a negative side. The positive side is that true fellowship is possible in the church and is meant to be found uniquely in the church. So as you start a new academic year, here are a few things to think about. Fellowship in the church should be planned. When does your church meet? Where does it meet? What time do you need to leave to get there? Even more, what what text will the sermon be covering in the days ahead? Find out in advance. What, What is the current prayer focus of the church? Who will you plan to meet when you get there? What conversations do you intentionally plan to have? What's the state and condition of your heart as you prepare to meet with your local church? What things can you do Saturday night to ensure that you're ready for Sunday morning? Fellowship in the church needs to be planned. It also needs to be pursued. You have a plan, now follow through with it. Get up when you say you're going to get up. Go when you say you're going to go. Meet the people you say we're going to meet, regardless of how you feel, regardless of what other urgent thing has come up. Fellowship in the church just doesn't happen. You have to plan it, pursue it, and you also have to protect it. Fellowship in the church should be prioritized. See it for what it is. Fellowship in the church is God's gift to you. It's a vehicle that God has given you to hear from and have fellowship with other people um, and other believers to help you, to melt away clouds. An instrument that, that God uses by his Holy Spirit is the local church to help you to think right. To, to help you to wake up. I cannot tell you the number of times in my own Christian life that working through something or struggling through something, the answer came, clarity was given, not in my own personal Bible study, but through the preaching of the word on Sunday morning gathered in the local fellowship or through a word spoken in the hallway by a fellow believer in my local church. Plan it, pursue it, protect it. Secondly, we should think about fellowship with friends in Christ. Let's talk about friendship for a moment. Friendship, C.S. Lewis says, arises out of mere companionship where two or more of the companions discover that they have something in common or interest that they did not know that they shared until that moment. The typical expression, Lewis says, of friendship is something like, what? You too, I thought I was the only one. Christian friendship transcends, and it is a beautiful thing when it does this. Cultures, race, generations, ethnicities, regions of the country, regions of the world. You can go anywhere in the world and the places I've traveled, and when you find true believers in Christ, instantaneously you feel at home and you know you have something in common with them. We should be developing and cultivating these Christian friendships. I have a bit in here about how I think you should also cultivate friendships with Christians who are no longer living, Um, but I'll save that for a history lecture. Um, But nevertheless, we have a wonderful, non-living friend that you can make named C.A. Spurgeon on this campus. And if you spend your entire academic career here and not investigate the life and work of C.H. Spurgeon, you're missing out on the potential of friendship and even fellowship with a wonderful brother who's gone before us who can regularly point you to Christ. But more importantly, I think it's important to develop Christian friendships among those who are actually living. I've read several articles this summer about this country is engaging in a friendship crisis. Uh, In the last 30 years, many studies have reported that people report 20% less of actually saying they have 10 friends or more. 16% less say that they actually have less of a best friend than they did 30 years ago or or decades ago. 
And that's happening out there. It's also happening within. And particularly it's true, I don't pay much attention to generational distinction, but, but among millennials, these, these stats are off the charts. They, millennials articulate that they don't know how to create friendships. They don't have lasting friendships. Those of us in Christ have so much in common, we should be pursuing these things. Christian friendships are often brought together by Christ and sustained by Christ. Fellowship among, among friends in the same way should be planned. They should be pursued. They should be protected. What old friends do you need to connect with? What new friends do you need to make? How can you center your friendships more on Christ? Are you going to be the one, when having a good time, who might direct that conversation a bit awkwardly more to the things that really matter for all time and eternity? I'm all for having fun, and oftentimes I need friends who can help me to have fun because I can tend to be a bit more serious. But those friendships are even more sweeter when they're rooted in Christ himself. They need to be planned. They need to be pursued. They need to be protected. A long time ago, when I was in college, a group of friends and I decided, without a lot of foresight, to covenant together to meet wherever we go in the world from that point forward once a year. And the purpose of our gathering would be to sharpen one another, to encourage one another, to check on one another, hold each other accountable, to update one another. And by God's grace, since 1998 until this year, except for one Zoom year last year during COVID, we have met every year, these friends. And we've all drifted to different places. Um, they don't read everything I write. They don't even know I'm probably preaching today. Um, they're busy, we're busy, but there's enough of a common connection to us in Christ Jesus that when we meet, there is true and sweet fellowship. And God has used that instrument of friendship to save me from all kinds of harm I know, but also to encourage and direct me in all kinds of practical ways and even spiritual ways. It has to be planned. It has to be pursued. It has to be prioritized. If you want those kinds of friends, it takes intentionality. This is the outgrowth of the gospel. Christ Jesus died and rose again and lives in us through the Holy Spirit so that we can have fellowship with one another in the church, fellowship and with friends. And then lastly, and most importantly, we can have fellowship with God himself in Christ. God, through Christ and by the Holy Spirit, is the best friend. He is the best source of fellowship that anyone can have. Jonathan Edwards, in a beautiful sermon called The Excellencies of Christ, said, Wherever, whatever so there is that is desirable to be in a friend in, is in Christ, and that to the highest degree can be desired. Edwards marvels that the lion and the lamb, the actual lion and the lamb, is someone that we can be friends with, we can have fellowship with. He is our friend, and it's right for us in Christ to call him our friend. With Jesus as the best friend, the true Christian truly experiences what the hymn means by melting the cloud of sin and sadness, driving the dark of doubt away. To persevere through the winter of discontent, it's a realization that you're never alone, that you have fellowship with Christ, the best friend. What does it actually mean to have God as a friend? Well, well Jesus Christ is not an imaginary friend, even though he is invisible. It's not like Calvin's Hobbes or Christopher Robin's Winnie the Pooh. We're constantly talking about this friend you have, but no one actually believes that you have him. You're the only one who knows that he's true. He's not imaginary, even though he is invisible. He's a bit more like Lucy's Aslan, actually. More real than anyone ever actually knows, and just as powerful and just as sweet and just as involved in one's life. He is invisible now, but he is real, and he will be visible one day. And our friendship and fellowship with him is anchored in the fact that we will see him one day. 
Fellowship with God should also be planned and pursued and protected. You may find yourself in a new season this semester. Make the most of those seasons prioritizing fellowship with God. One of my last summers in college, I was sharing an apartment with my younger sister. I was about to graduate. She was in the middle of her degree, and we were both working. And it turned out that that summer, all of my friends had gone, and it was really the first summer in a long time that I was virtually alone. Uh, my sister's schedule was such that I would eat most meals of my alone in my house. And I struggle with this because I'm used to just having 18 people around me all the time and all these noises and things. And God, through his kindness, taught me some of these key principles of what it meant to have fellowship with him. That very summer, I was given for the first time a prayer guide how to, by the IMB, International Mission Board, how to pray for Muslims during Ramadan. I said, this is a great plan. What I'm going to do is every meal that I have, I'm going to use this prayer guide, and I'm basically going to have a meal with God himself. I'm going to eat and pray and talk to God. And that experience, that season of loneliness, was one of the sweetest times for developing actual fellowship with God and even learning how to pray and to think about other peoples in the world that I've ever had. Plan and take advantage of the circumstances you've been given to have fellowship with God. Pursue it and protect it. Carry it through. Prioritize your fellowship with God in Christ and ask for his help. And regardless if you're discouraged about the patterns in your life before, you are today hereby given a clean, clean slate to start again. Be encouraged. Pursue God. Plan to have time with him. Pursue fellowship with him. Lastly, we see further the point of all this in verse 4. And we are writing these things that our joy may be complete, John says. That our joy may be complete. This final postscript to John's prologue is simply saying that having fellowship with God made possible by the gospel brings the type of joy that only the Bible can speak about and the world can never understand. In John 20, Jesus appeared to the disciples before his ascension, and he, John records that the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. It's the type of joy that only comes out of having true fellowship with God, a true fellowship shared among those who know God. This is the type of joy that emotes from the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, and so forth. Joy in full. God means for us to find joy in him, to be happy in him, to delight in him. So much of this joy increases the more we have fellowship with him. Since January of this year in 2021, I've been working through very slowly the Gospel of Mark and the times in which I read the Bible. And I've been helped very much by Tim Keller's book, King's Cross, it's an older book. And it's really guided me into this amazing season of just focusing on Christ for himself. And these are stories I've read many times. These are thoughts I've had many times. But the focus on Christ himself, to having fellowship with him, has brought about such deep joy that I struggle even to describe it. I regularly, daily, it's been weeks, I get to the point of just having to stop and I just sit there and marvel at how wonderful we have a Savior. He is a wonderful Savior. And when you have fellowship with God and you experience the joy in Christ, God in his kindness sometimes comes along and lifts you up and helps you to see how wonderful he truly is. When you prioritize it and plan it and pursue it, you will be amazed by the joy that God gives us in Christ. There's a moment in J.R.R. Tolkien's trilogy where his fellowship is faced with the daunting task of traversing the underground mines of Moria. 
Half of you now know what I'm talking about. Most of you are thinking not one of those Tolkien stories again. But this is important. Um, the dwarves that lived in the mines of Moria uh, were once industrious, and this was an incredibly powerful and industrious place. But now, at this point, it's reduced to something dark and dreadful. The fellowship, following the leadership of their guide, Gandalf, leads the company of travelers, interestingly, by speaking a word to enter into the mines. That word is friend. Fellowship, speaking the word friend, they go in there. They don't have a map. Gandalf, who's typically omniscient, clearly doesn't know for some reason what to do. And they don't know where to go. Uh, they begin to look to each other. Facing darkness, they basically make up their minds, Tolkien says, to go towards light and the north door. And following the light together as a fellowship, however faint, proves essential to their successful navigation of the mines and ultimately to the achievement of their overarching quest to see evil destroyed and the return of the king. In this cultural moment, these days that look more and more like Shakespeare's tragedy, the winter of our discontent, the Christians sojourn through our culture or through our experiences, very much like of the fellowship's journey through the mines. And don't miss the point that the fellowship were not traveling alone. This was not some hero quest. This was a fellowship, a group of people traveling together. Their fellowship made all the difference. What we need in these days is fellowship, primarily with the church, with Christian friends and God himself to help point us to what? Regular sources of light to lead us on our way out of the darkness, out of the winter of discontent, out of the murkiness of the clouds. We've been given that light through the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of life himself. Tolkien's fellowship searching for help in a dark corridor found that faint source of light and by it were able to move forward in their quest. May we do the same. Seeing the true value of fellowship in the winter of our discontent until evil is destroyed and we see the return of our King. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for these brief moments and the opportunity to realize anew how good you are, how kind you are, that you condescend to us and allow you even to call you friend by the blood of Christ. And I pray that this semester we would all seek that as the answer to the many questions we have about the days in which we're living. In Jesus' name, amen.